Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I dozed off there. I was watching uh, Katie Telford's uh, two-and-a-half-hour testimony before a House of Commons committee. I think I made my way through the first two hours, and then I just passed out. I didn't even know I was on air right now. Uh, what time is it? Uh, 3.30? Okay, so I've been out for a little over an hour. Has anything happened? No? I didn't miss anything? No, she said nothing? Oh, who could have seen that coming? Well, if you would like that question answered, please check out today's Daily Brief, in which I said, you know, I bet Katie Telford is not going to say a darn thing. Welcome, my friends, to Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North, closing out the week on this Friday, April 14th, 2023. And the uh, aforementioned testimony by Katie Telford, I don't even, like, I should of even budgeted time in the show to talk about it because there's nothing to talk about. She sat there and MPs asked her questions. She gave what were theoretically in the broadest sense of the phrase uh, characterized as answers, although I think responses is probably more actually i think even that's a bit generous and at the end of it i don't think we know anything more about china's interference in canadian elections or the government's response or lack of response than we did a couple of hours ago so i i think that the conservatives made a bit of a tactical error in putting so much emphasis on getting Katie Telford to testify, the chief of staff to Justin Trudeau, taking questions from parliamentarians. They're all going to get to the bottom of it. They're asking what she knew, when she knew it, uh, what she was briefed on, when she was briefed, how much she told Justin Trudeau, how much was passed along to the Liberal campaign, and all of that. And look, the questions are fair. The issue is a reasonable one. But it's not something that the Liberals have any interest in being transparent about. So I don't know why anyone thought that putting Katie Telford in the hot seat on committee was going to reveal anything whatsoever. So I, I'm not exaggerating here. Believe me when I say I have nothing to report to you from what happened. I, I can talk about what didn't happen, and I can certainly talk about how she went around talking, but there's literally no new information that came out of this. So what happened first and foremost was everything was concealed uh, concealed by national security, anything that would have been substantive. It's like, well, I can't talk about that. That's national security. Well, I can't talk about that. I've, I had to undertake to not disclose this, so I can't talk about it. And there are obviously very real things that are protected under national security grounds. But here we're talking about an inquiry that is supposed to be led by the people representing the Canadian people, representing the, those of us in the country uh, to whom the government is supposed to be accountable, not the other way around. And when it came to things that Katie Telford would be legally authorized to say, uh, curiously, she didn't have any of the answers. Anytime she was asked a question that was even potentially interesting, she would say, well, you know, I didn't, I wasn't in that meeting. I don't know about a meeting like that. Oh, you'd have to talk to so-and-so. Oh, you'd have to talk to them. Oh, that was on the campaign. I mean, she couldn't even answer the, the one question that I thought was uh, probably the easiest question. A conservative MP, Michael Barrett said to Katie Telford, this is, I don't have a clip of it handy, but this is legitimately the question. What role did you have on the campaign? And her answer was, I was on the bus. 
like, were you driving the bus? Were you catering on the bus? Were you uh, doing push-ups on the bus? Were you holding the camera for Justin Trudeau to do his uh, video takes? Were, like, what were you doing on the bus? Were you advising? Were you consulting? Were you just, like, sleeping like I was at the beginning of the show? Uh, so who knows what she was doing? She was on the bus. And conveniently, when anything came up of substance that had to do with, oh, I don't know, Han Dong, the uh, then-liberal candidate that it sounded like was getting a little bit of a push from the Chinese Paula Beer, she said, well, I wasn't in any conversation. So did any conversations take place? I don't know. Maybe I, I, I wasn't in any conversations. Uh, you'll have to talk to so-and-so. So apparently we're going to hear from someone on this committee that's connected to the liberal campaign at a meeting that will be scheduled in April. And maybe when we hear from the campaign source, we'll get a bit more information about what could have happened, what might have happened, what didn't happen. But I'm not optimistic. And, and here's why I go back to comments I made uh, several weeks ago about why I'm, I'm not holding my breath that a public inquiry, even if we were to have one, would actually reveal as much as people think. Because the government has all of these different tricks up its sleeve, all of these tools at its disposal to not give up information. I mean, you look at the Freedom Convoy and then the resulting Public Order Emergency Commission. The government made a point of saying it was the most transparent exercise in the history of governments anywhere or whatever it was. You know, we've waived cabinet confidence, we've waived this, we've waived that. And, and even with all of those waivers, there was information that the government wouldn't give. The government wouldn't give, for example, information that it said was protected under solicitor-client privilege, which ended up being a, a pretty critical piece of evidence in this whole discussion. So you take a public inquiry that talks about something that is directly related to national security, and you know that there's not going to be transparency. So instead, we're to be satisfied that David Johnston, the uber-eminent special rapporteur on China's interference in Canada's elections, a guy who takes these, like, you know, he goes on parades with Xi Jinping, he buddy-buddies with Xi Jinping. He made one comment, I, I, the exact quote I can't remember, but I, I remember the critical word, which was that he was in China and said he felt at home there. Well, I mean, increasingly in Justin Trudeau's Canada, it's probably not all that uncharacteristic to feel at home in China. So uh, that's more of a reflection of uh, Justin Trudeau's Canada than of David Johnston, I guess. But uh, here's a guy who doesn't actually engage with people that aren't like him. He is uber eminent. He plays by different rules. It doesn't matter that he goes on ski trips with the Trudeau family. Uh, he is eminent enough to be his uh, royal eminent eminence and then be special enough to be the rapporteur, uh, irrespective of these connections. So he may come out with a finding that suggests there should be a public inquiry, which would be probably David Johnston's greatest ability to save face and say, yeah, you know what? I want to just say that I realize this is bigger than me. I'm not going to sweep it under the rug. Y'all have to have an inquiring uh, because David Johnson will definitely use the word y'all. You can mark my words. But all of that is besides the point in that I'm not saying we should ignore this thing because this is important and where there's smoke, there's fire. And I don't actually agree fundamentally with what uh, my colleague Andrew Kirsch said on the show last week, the former CSIS intelligence officer who basically took the position that, well, we shouldn't be celebrating leaks. I think at the same point, time, whether we could hand ring about what should have happened, we do have this information now. We know there was China inter Chinese interference in Canada's elections. We know it was to benefit the Liberals. And we know that Justin Trudeau's story 
story of this has changed more times than I can count. Remember when it was, well, I was never briefed on funding, and then it was, oh, yes, I was briefed, but I didn't know the extent of it, and then it was, yes, I've received many briefings, and then just this week, he had like changed tack again and was talking about how many times he was briefed on this and how seriously he took it and how they were working round the clock to solve it. So, so which is it? Is it that it was no big deal or is it that this was something that you were actively engaged in and you were staying on top of and it's a learning opportunity for us all and all that? Because uh, the liberals now have been proven to be trying to get very cute with their excuses. Even when Justin Trudeau said that he was never briefed, he didn't say technically he was never briefed on Chinese interference. He said he was never briefed on China funding candidates. And if you, in, in the context, he was trying to get people off his back. He was trying to make it sound like, oh, this is the first time learning of it when the media is bringing it up. But what he was actually admitting to is that he did have conversations about the broader issue of interference, but he wasn't going to cop to that one specific part of it. So maybe that part wasn't brought up in a briefing at that time or, or something like that, or maybe it was. I mean, one of the, the documents that we've seen in the last couple of days shows just the extent to which there were meetings between the CSIS director and the National Security Advisor and the government. I, I'm looking right now at a document, and I just want to get this, the name of the committee right here. This is a, a document uh, that was published in the committee's digital binder. So these are documents that were provided to committee, and they show a list of meetings, a list of meetings that are specifically about briefings on foreign election interference. October 22nd, 2018, the National Security Advisor uh, met with Justin Trudeau. February 9th, 2021, the director of CSIS briefed Justin Trudeau. June 14th, 2022, the National Security Advisor briefed Justin Trudeau. October of 2022, the CSIS director did. November 30th, the C uh, NSIA, the National Security Advisor did. And on March 20th, just uh, what, three weeks ago, the National Security Advisor and the CSIS Director both briefed Justin Trudeau on this. You then take another look at this and talk about uh, briefings to ministers. And oh my goodness, we have here, I'm looking at the list, August 15th, 2018, October 5th, 2018, November 26th of that year, January of 2019, April 2019, May 2019, June, July, August, August. We had monthly meetings in August of 2019, uh, an election year, by the way, two back-to-back -back briefings for the Minister of Democratic Institutions by the CSIS director, by the chief CSE, the chief of CSE, the Communications Security Establishment, and on and on these went into 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023. So the government was painfully aware vividly so that election interference was an issue. They were getting ongoing briefings. So if they were not briefed to the full extent of this, that is an example of all of these briefers being colossally bad at their job, that they don't even bring up the details on which they're supposed to be briefing. But I actually suspect that wasn't the case. And by the way, Katie Telford was briefed as a representative of the office. There were other briefings here that weren't with Justin Trudeau, but were with uh, the prime minister's office when that didn't happen, as Katie Telford said today. So she did say one thing, it would generally be with her. 
And then when you look at the list of uh, briefings that took place with political party representatives, so people that signed an agreement to not talk about it, they were being told these things as well. And included in that would be liberal aides, liberal campaign officials that presumably were being told, hey, we've got some concerns with some of your candidates and their relationship with China. Here you go. So you'd think at some point there would have been a conversation to take Han Dong's name because he's been accused and he's been named. So he has a right to uh, defend himself. He has said that this is not an accurate allegation, but he has been accused of being the beneficiary of Chinese interference in these documents. So presumably there would have been a conversation at some point among some pretty chief liberals. Hey, do we cut this Han Dong guy loose or do we keep him around? Even if they sided with keeping him, which they did, you'd think there would have at least been a conversation. But Katie Telford had no idea. She's, well, I wasn't a part of that. So what were you doing? I know you were on the bus, but what were you doing if you were not there? Because if you were on the bus with Justin Trudeau, presumably you would have been around Justin Trudeau if he were having this conversation. So either we have these things that have just not been taken seriously by the liberals, which is entirely possible, or we have all of these people just being blatantly and brazenly dishonest, which I actually think uh, the truth might be somewhere in the middle of here. Uh, We are going to talk about this further in the future because... uh, as I said, I can't really base a show off of uh, comments that weren't made. And I, even the questions, I, I don't think were all that great that Katie Telford w- was getting. But if you really want to laugh, look at the questions that were being asked of her by liberal MPs, because they're all on the committee. So the liberals get to lob their softballs at her. And they're basically like the equivalent of if you're Simpsons fans of Lisa Simpson's interview with Mr. Burns. And she says, you know, your campaign has all the momentum of a runaway freight train. Why are you so popular? It was basically that. Like Jennifer O'Connell's uh, asked like some eight minute question about how terrible Pierre Polyev was. And I'm like, well, Pierre Polyev wasn't the guy that uh, Justin Trudeau, or wasn't the guy, oh, there's a Freudian slip. Pierre Polyev wasn't the guy that Xi Jinping wanted the candidates uh, to win of. So uh, take from that what you will. I do want to carry on with a bit of a sidestep from the usual daily grind of politics, though. Earlier today, I caught up with an author whose book, I think, touches on a lot of the big themes of the era. That's coming right up. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I have become a a bit of a history nerd in recent years. I never went to uh, set out to study that in the first place, but I've just become more and more enamored with history. Frankly, the more people in this day and age try to take aim at history and or oftentimes just ignore it altogether. So I was very, very pleased when I, I saw a book that says the past is not something that we should run from, but arguably run towards. Uh, Michael Bonner, who I, I've met a couple of occasions, and he's been a quite a prolific figure uh, for reasons that will become apparent very soon. But he's written a fantastic book in defense of civilization, how our past can renew our present. And he joins me now. Uh, Michael Bonner, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today and congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Now, I know you, you've obviously gone through academia. You have a, a PhD. You're tremendously accomplished. This is not written just for the academic in mind. I mean, this was a, a very readable read, as they say. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't want to get into academic fights or controversies or anything like that. I wanted, I wanted just, you know, to tell the story uh, or to to make 
the argument. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very relieved that you think I succeeded. Well, let me hear in your words what you think that argument is. What is it that you set out to do with this? Well, I mean, I can sum it up with, um, you know, there are a couple of quotations that I include at the end of the book. You know, there's that there's that saying from, uh, you know, T.S. Eliot. He says, history is now, which is seemingly a paradox. History is now. And then there's the other one. History is ourselves from Kenneth Clark. And the point is that we need to find meaning and purpose. Every generation needs to find meaning and purpose in the past. And that doesn't mean that the past is, you know, uniformly uh, to be, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be uncritical. We shouldn't be, um, you know, partisan or blind to um, our past failures. But we have to come to terms with it, wrestle with it, make sense of it, and find find meaning and purpose in it. One of the challenges politically, and I, I know this book is not a, an artifact of the culture war. I think you take a much more nuanced and much bigger picture view of things. But I'd say one of the challenges that we do see today is that there are a lot of people who view the past as irreconcilable with the present. And they, they think, as I alluded to a moment ago, that it's something we should run away from, that we should denounce, that we should condemn. And I'd say often that's coming from people that have not undertaken to understand the past entirely. But what is it precisely that you think makes it so that these things are, are not just reconcilable, but actually that we need to look to the past as we move forward? Well, the, I mean, the fundamental problem is that there is no break in history. There is no um, break with the past. It's impossible. And attempts have been made, um, notably in the 20th century, um, but it doesn't work. And sort of disconnecting, uh, disconnecting people uh, from the past is extraordinarily disruptive. Um, you can find examples of this um, from this sort of accidental in the form of, you know, the Industrial Revolution, people, you know, being herded into factories instead of working on their farms and so forth. Extraordinarily disruptive. Um, or much more sinister in the case of the Soviet and Nazi tyrannies, sort of insisting that, you know, everything that came before is, is sort of to be repudiated and looking far into the future uh, toward a sort of utopia. Um, it look, basically, making, trying to make that break has not had a good track record. And, you know, we, we shouldn't try. We should try to find as I say, meaning we should try to make our peace uh, with the, the, the evils or the failures of the past rather than trying to um, obliterate them. Does the view that Western nations have, the Western world has to, to civilization, align in your view with how other cultures are, are dealing with this and other cultures are, are doing this? Because, I mean, even if you, you take a, a strictly Canadian context on this, whatever people think of Quebec politics, Quebec as a society is much more emphatic about protecting its culture and asserting its culture. And I, I think in a lot of the Western world, we, we see really this idea that we're not allowed to have a culture. We're not allowed to celebrate our civilization. I, I know you're, you've studied Iran extensively. I, I know you talk about China extensively in the book. And it strikes me that a lot of these other parts of the world, for whatever their faults politically, have actually done a better job of trying to preserve their civilization. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
what I, what I would say is that the Western view of history as a story of progress, uh, that is extremely unusual. And I don't think that it's correct. Um, first of all, that, that's, that's simply an assumption. It seems to be borne out by, you know, the facts of the sort of mid 20th century onward. If you lived in most of North America, life looked like it was getting better and better and better. And that, it, you know, you might have concluded that nothing would get in the way of continuous improvement. Um, but that that's a very unusual view historically. And I think now we're beginning to understand or realize that that is not um, correct. Uh, it can't be taken for granted. You know, the, the, the um, continuous evolution of technology is not um, a reliable measure of you know, uh, of a civilization or uh, of the, this, uh, the success of a, of a culture. And um, an older view, which I think is borne out by um, human experience, is something more like a cycle of, of um, uh, the, the rise and then the eventual uh, collapse of societies or, or of civilizations. And um, we should take this to heart, um, I think no, no civilization is immune from collapse. However long a view you take, you know, it's sometimes tempting to think of like constant evolution and change and so forth. But the longer a view you take, the more you are forced to admit that eventually, you know, human societies do die out. And are where do you think we are at in that cycle now? Well, I can't say for sure. I mean, this is, this is, this is, a. uh, uh uh, I mean, it, it depends who you ask. I mean, there are people who might say that with the Continental Reformation, everything went to pot in, you know, 1517, and it's been, you know... Uh, it's all been downhill since then. Yeah, well, I mean, from from one perspective, that would be true. From the perspective of the, um, the uh, sort of closely knit tightly integrated society of the Western, Western European Middle Ages, uh, that, that society is no more. It's, it's, it's gone. I mean, you might find sort of relics of it in, in sort of agricultural areas of, uh, of, of Europe, but that's sort of, that's sort of mostly, uh, mostly gone. Um, and, you know, if you think of, if you think of how much has, um, how should I put this? You think of as useful as the internet is and so forth, you think how, how, um, different life is, uh, you know, people are somewhat less likely to gather in the so-called third place or the, you know, the, there's the famous, there's the famous study uh, called bowling alone, the study of sort of um, uh, fraternal and volunteer organizations in America, you know, th that, that sort of lifestyle where, you know, a whole sort of town gets together to, you know, join in a musical performance or, you know, there are various sort of layers of clubs and church organizations or volunteer groups, you know, that has some, it's not totally gone, but it has somewhat faded away. And I think that the, the, the spread of, um, you know, internet technology and so forth has somewhat accelerated that, um, depending on who you ask, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm more on the side of 
that represents a decline rather than a, an, an evolution. But the the point for me is not necessarily to pinpoint exactly where we might be on some sort of trajectory, but rather to remind people that what I'm calling civilization is fragile, that it needs to be protected and, and nurtured, and that we do that, or historically we have always done that as a, as a species by looking to the past, finding meaning there and, and imitating what, uh, ha what worked uh, before. One of the things that you touch on in the book that I, I find very interesting is how contentment or satisf satisfaction do not correlate with what a lot of people characterize as, as progress. I mean, we have, as you've noted in our discussion now and in the book, we have technological innovations that, you know, we're just completely unimaginable. Uh, even a generation ago, let alone countless generations ago, you have uh, medical innovations, you have longer lifespans. Now that is a little bit more dubious now. But all of this has, for a lot of people, not made the world a better place, and it's not made their life better. And, and I'm curious where you think that comes from. Is it a, a decline in faith? Is it a decline in moral grounding? Or is it something else entirely? Well, yeah, it's, that's a very important question. I think that the first thing we should observe, I mean, I, I'm not a Luddite, I'm not opposed to technologies. No, you don't view modernity as the enemy as exclusively as some of your contemporaries might. Yeah, like, and, and of course, again, there's no, there's no break in history going either forward or back, right? So, you know, we're, we are where we are and we're, we're not going to change that. But the... Um, the fundamental point is that the, uh, I think in a, in, in a society in which you would not have had the comforts that you describe or the benefits of science and, and especially uh, medicine and so forth, that you would have, it, it would have been easier to um, maintain a view whereby, you know, the world requires much more input from you much more work from you know you and your family to sort of hold it together to keep the forces of um, uh, chaos uh, at bay or to sort of you know reverse uh, decline and so forth now it's easier to coast and I think that a, a better I think a, a better approach would be to say well let's you know let, let, let's keep our technology let's improve it but let's use it to connect ourselves better to provide more leisure for ourselves to to work at our culture to form societies to form families to uh you know in, ensure that uh the conditions under which we ourselves grew up and flourished are still there for you know for our children and that sort of thing and i think i think we've lost uh, side of that. I think that there was a sense at the end of the 20th century that um, a sort of, you know, triumphant Western liberal order had no uh, enemies left and it was just time to, you know, re relax and take it easy and so forth. You know, a sort of uh, caricature of the, of, the, of the Fukuyama end of history sort of thing. But um, I think we now realize that that was um, mistaken and that, you know, our institutions and our, um, our, our civilization need, 
um, significantly more uh, work than we've uh, put into them. Well, one of the challenges, too, is that we often pretend that some things are a lot more enduring than they are. And I, I mean, I know you've worked in politics. I've been immersed in that world, uh, unfortunately, as well. And the reality is people put so much emphasis on things that will not last and we know will not last. And uh, you see that in manufacturing. We build things that do not last. And there is this I don't know if it's an indifference to history or if it's just not understanding what will withstand the test of time. I'm curious your take on that. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I, I do think that you're right. But what has stood the test of time, I think, is actually so obvious that it's easy to miss. I mean, if you think about it, um, like civilization or, you know, what I'm calling civilization is only really about... Um, 5,000 years old, if you, if you consider the, the uh, say, the Old Kingdom Egypt or, you know, Mesopotamia, it's, it's about that. It has, it has some earlier origins, which I talk about um, in the book, but, you know, it's fully formed about 5,000 years ago. That is a blip in the history of the human species. Um, that's like an, an, a nanosecond in our full existence, right? And if you think about how many of these societies and empires and, you know, uh, city-states or whatever that have come and gone um, over time, some of them we didn't even know about until they were dug out of the ground in the, in the 19th century. That's how um, thorough the uh, collapse and obliteration uh, can be. And for all we know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not impossible, but... Uh, I don't know how likely it is, but it's it's possible that um, you know the the very very sort of earliest stirrings of settled life and so forth that they they represent um, the rebirth from a time when there had already been a decline. That's possible, you know. I don't know for sure, but what has worked in the past, I think, is 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 very is very obvious. I mean, the earliest states, for example, or the, er the the earliest societies, they were not states. They were basically agglomerations of households. Um, the earliest states were sort of households scaled up. Um, the household seems to scale well. Um, what does not scale up well, uh, in my opinion, is the contemporary emphasis on the sort of uh, radical and extreme uh, individualism. Um, obviously, you know, in in you know West Western society, there, there's always been a kind of trend, or you know, some people claim to have discerned this this sort of like inevitable trend toward the you know the growth of individualism and so forth. And for all the good that that has done, it can be pushed to an extreme. And I think in contemporary society, it has been. That is, a, that is an innovation, that is a new thing that I think has not worked uh, well for us. Um, looking, back to the, looking back to the past, we can find things that have, um, that have worked simply because they have been passed down and imitated. And th that would be, you know, my, my recommendation would be that's where we should, uh, we should start. Someone recently reviewed the book and she said, well, you know, um, if I understand it right, what we should do is, you know, we should read our, we should, we should read our grandmother's recipes and bake, bake cakes with our children. And I think, yeah, that's great. 
that's where uh, let's let's start there one of the big challenges in being canadian is how distorted your view of time can be and of history can be. I mean, you mentioned 5,000 years being a, a blip. In Canada, if, you know, an outhouse was constructed in 1920, municipalities will declare it a heritage landmark and, and not allow anything to develop it. And you go to, you know, even the United States, which has about a century head start on Canada. And there is uh, this one on the Freedom Trail in Boston. I remember there's this old 1700s building that was a quintessential part of the American Revolution, and it's now a Chipotle. Um, and then you go to Europe. I remember being in Malta, and I went to this little museum that was in a church and they had something that was uh, 3000 years old. And the museum director was like, here, touch it uh, here, hold it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And I was like, I I'm terrified of this. And, and, and there is something to this that oftentimes we sort of view through our own society's lens where history begins. And in Canada, whether it's, you know, 1867 or whether you go back to 1763 or 1534, wherever it is, we're still talking about such a, a narrow, narrow slice of what has been in the world. And, and you, you translate that to architecture to talk about heritage landmarks. And, and buildings have become, I, I think, such an interesting uh, case study in, in how people view history and how people view the past and how people view what is or isn't fashionable. And I know you talk about architecture significantly in the book, and I was wondering if you'd explain why you believe buildings are so important in this discussion. Ah, uh, okay, yes. I'll get to the buildings in a second, but I, I just, I, I cannot resist taking over one. The, the, the part of the problem, and you know, I, I love history the same way you do, and I think that Canadian history also should be taught and so forth. But I think that we have to be wary of this idea that you can hive off something called Canadian history from some other kind of human history. Because if you do that, then you're left with an ever-diminishing uh, amount of time that sort of very quickly becomes current events or some form of journalism, potentially. Well, and, and history is a measure of time and also space. You're, you're quite right. Time and space, and that's, that's the architectural connection, too. But, I mean, people have lived in Canada, or what we call Canada, you know, um, for, what is it? Forty thousand years. I mean, the, the, there is a, there is a history of settlement here which we should not ignore, right? And obviously, this is a fraught, you know, this is a politically fraught question, which is very sad to me. I don't. I wish it were not. But um, all of human history is our collective patrimony. And that there, we should be very wary of sort of hiving it all off into these different things, as though there's no there's no continuity. I mean, I'm I'm very big on on continuity. Obviously, there are moments where continuity is broken, but the whole point of the civilized attitude is to try to maintain that continuity, which means that I very I'm uh, I'm very very. Uh, uh, opposed well or i guess I, I i dislike i dislike the sort of capital l liberal approach to canadian history whereby there's this sort of break with the past in 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 1867 and then there's another one in 1982 with pierre trudeau and so you know i i, I you know let's just let's just look where you know let's look as far back into the past as we possibly can to you know, um, the ancestors of everybody who is here, 
um, to our, you know, our, uh, our Aboriginal past. And let's bring it all together into, into the most expansive and capacious story that we can. I mean, that's that's my view as for our no, it's very well said and I, I know you do have to go but i, I do want to get in a question about buildings oh, here because i i did tease it and i'm personally interested in it so uh, explain why that's so central well buildings buildings fundamentally symbolize uh, as i argue what what i call the, the the civilized attitude that that you have a place in space and time it is symbolized by building a building by putting uh, putting up a structure that is an extension of your, you know, it, it's basically an extension of your own uh, body, which protects you from your ele- from the elements and marks out a particular space as a as a significant one, either because you live there or you work there or it's some kind of official uh, building or it's a monument or something uh, something like that. The the so called the anthropology of architecture, I think, is an extremely important notion. Architecture, if it is to be civilized, it should be built on a human scale. I, I don't like the, the gigantism of modern uh, skyscrapers, uh, which can only be appreciated from a huge distance away, uh, or the sort of distortions of modernist or postmodernist architecture where, you know, you don't know where the door is or you you can't get in. And when you find it, you don't know if it's a push or a pull. Yeah, I mean, there's all that kind of stuff too. But I mean, fundamentally, ancient people had uh, uh, what I would consider to be a a different attitude, which is that you've marked out a place where, you know, some particular activity, business occurs, and that it is structured in a way to meet your needs, not to challenge them. And I think that that has been... um, I think that's been lost um, from urban planning. Although there are some, there are some signs that uh, um, it might be changing. The the new king, uh, former Prince Charles, is a big architecture uh, buff. He's written a lot of books that people used to laugh at. But I think that um, I think that his his position on on these things is fundamentally sound, and we might um, we might see some change there. We'll see. Well, it might be a little bit of a low reach for you, but I, I think we should get you on some zoning boards. I would love to see what uh, you came up with there. Uh, Michael Bonner, the book is In Defense of Civilization, How Our Past Can Renew Our Present. And I don't recommend books uh, often just because I, I don't uh, read as many books as I'd like. There are far more out there than I have time to read. But this one uh, definitely grabbed me, and I, I think you would enjoy it as well. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on and for writing this. It was great talking to you. Pleasure. Thank you for having You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. To delve down into the uh, nitty-gritty and talk about the really uber-specific stories. Uh, One in particular jumps out from Vancouver. We've talked about housing, which is a very big issue. It is uh, rising in cost. It is uh, forcing people out of the market entirely. Uh, And in Vancouver, things are so bad that you might find yourself not able to afford a home, not able to afford uh, perhaps a, a condo, not able to afford an apartment, not even able to afford a room in an apartment, but how about a bed in a room in an apartment? A Vancouver rental ad was offering a lower bunk 
for $620, a lower bunk. Now, this was an ad put on Craigslist, and in the advertisement, uh, it is someone who says they are a uh, University of British Columbia alumni. Now, I believe it should be alumnus or alumna, but I won't get too particular on the Latin plurals. Uh, They say they're offering... (laughs) this a secure and family oriented home to live in and you can uh, go i don't know vancouver very well uh it's actually in a a house the house features 10 bedrooms and nine bathrooms and uh, they're just like cramming students into this i guess to such an extent that you can for six hundred dollars uh in this house get the lower bunk now so each of the rooms is $1,101 plus utilities and internet. And for two people, there's a a $350 charge. And this leads us to the one shared room that is like the hostel equivalent of housing. Now, I don't want to begrudge people that need to make tough calls, but I think when we are renting out uh, lower bunks and people think this is an acceptable housing option, perhaps we are not exactly looking at the uh, right uh, way of doing things in society. Now, the ad ended up being uh, removed, as I understand it. So I don't know if this is because someone snatched it up or maybe because it got a little bit of negative attention, uh, it got uh, pulled for that reason. But the bizarre thing is, if you look at that, the house is actually lovely. I mean, the house actually looks like a lot of fun. Uh, The kitchen is nice and spacious, has a beautiful island. They've even got a French press on the kitchen counter in the listing. So clearly some classy coffee taste. But uh, when you are cramming so many people into the house, I mean, I don't know, maybe that's a way to make your uh, universe university experience soar, but I think it is an example of perhaps a less than adequate uh, situation here. Uh, Other weird news today uh, that I have to point out, this one brought me back because years ago in Ontario, when the Liberal government was in power, I remember there was this big controversy. It was all the rage and talk radio in the columns of government subsidizing a giant duck. Now, this was a real story. There was a a giant duck. It was supposed to be the world's largest duck. You can see it for yourself on the screen right now. Uh, The world's largest duck was to be a magnificent display, so much so uh, that the Canada, that the Ontario government was subsidizing this. Uh, And, you know, oddly, as far as things that the Kathleen Wynne government in Ontario spent money on, the duck wasn't even uh, the, the worst. But this rubber duck is coming back. It has now been six years since Ontarians were first First graced with its presence and now the Toronto Waterfront Festival is returning and the duck will be coming back in September. So if you missed your shot at looking at this uh, giant floating bath toy in 2017, uh, you can come back and I may actually take a, a quack at doing a segment about it in September. Never mind. I won't I won't do that anymore. I apologize. I, I apologize. That that was that was not fair for you to have to listen to that. But uh, uh, what else do we have going on here? Uh, you think inflation is bad? Even the price of Girl Guide cookies is going up. I got a uh, bulletin, a business bulletin this morning. Uh, no, I'm not going to make a pun on this one. So don't if you're like all nervous now and you're ready to get like pun triggered, uh, that won't happen. Uh, but the uh, Girl Guides have raised their cookie prices for the first time in a decade by 20. percent So the the uh, classic chocolate and vanilla sandwich cookies, which are not as good as the mint ones, by the way. And I, I where where do the mint ones go? Because it seems like anytime they're selling uh, cookies, it's these like 
weird vanilla chocolate ones. Anyway, uh, they're going up from $5 to $6 a box due to increased costs of baking and shipping. So uh, first it's the eggs and then it's the Girl Guide cookies. And now uh, you have to choose between the lower bunk in a Vancouver apartment or uh, the extra box of Girl Guide cookies. These are the tough choices that people need to make now. It is Friday, so keeping with the True North tradition, we like to end things on a bit of a lighter note. And I'm trying to like wash the taste of the, uh, you know, take a quack at it pun out of your ears because tastes are in your ears now. It's a very, we're, we're going very postmodern on the show today. Uh, but let's have a little round of Fake News Friday. Yes, Fake News Friday, scouring every corner of the globe, finding our way through the blizzard of lies, the depths of deception, the caves of confabulations. I don't know, fabrications? We'll, uh, we'll come up with some new alliteration there. Uh, but this one, actually, we have to give honorable mention to conservative leader Pierre Polyev for trying to push back against this in real time when faced with a question in Edmonton from a Canadian press reporter. Take a look. When it comes to defunding the CBC, you've signaled the intention to maintain a level of support for Radio Canada and French language programming. To do that, the corporation says the Broadcasting Act would need to be amended. So, are you prepared to change the law and create a public broadcaster that only serves one group in Canada? Uh, you, you work for CP? Yes, I do. So, you, your biggest client is CBC, right? Yes, but my yes, question still that's stands. Right. I just don't want. I just want to be careful that we don't get you into a conflict of interest here. Have you checked with the ethics commissioner on whether you're in a conflict of interest in asking about CBC funding, given that it's the principal source of money for CP? Uh, I would check that with my editors, but again, are okay. you still prepared to change the law and create a public broadcaster that so, only serves one language in Canada? The uh, CBC, uh, frankly, is a biased propaganda arm of the Liberal Party and, frankly, negatively affects all, all media. For example, CP is negatively affected by the fact that it, you have to report favorably on the CBC if you want to keep your number one taxpayer-funded client happy. We need a neutral and free media, but not a propaganda arm for the Liberal Party. And when I'm Prime Minister, we're going to have a free press where everyday Canadians decide what they think rather than having liberal propaganda jammed down their throats. Next question. Thank you. Well, that was, uh, I think, quite the display. And look, I think that in some cases... Uh, it is fair to say that we don't want to see a totally antagonistic relationship between politicians and the media. But I think both of them have a job to do. And I think it's fine to fight fire with fire. And in that case, if you have uh, Pierre Polyev getting you know needled with questions about CBC defunding and he wants to point out that, hey, uh, you guys are cashing big checks from CBC, that's a fair question to put to journalists. And one thing I'll say about the media in general is that oftentimes journalists try to sort of hide behind objectivity and in the sense that they don't believe that they are agents of the stories they cover and the issues they cover and all of that. And, and I, I don't know the reporter who asked the question. This isn't a, a slight at them by any stretch. But I'm saying in general, the I'm just asking questions defense doesn't really fly when you're going after one particular party or one particular candidate in a different way than you go after others. So... 
I think in this particular case, yes, it's fair to talk to Pierre Polyev about CBC funding, given that is a, a campaign issue that he's chosen to take up. Completely fair. I also think it's fair for the media to have to play defense every now and then, uh, because we know the other way hasn't exactly worked well for conservatives of just groveling and hoping that eventually you'll make them like you. So that hasn't worked. So uh, try the Ron DeSantis approach, as I've said in the past. That does it for us for today. I want to just give you a huge uh, thank you for tuning in to this show. As you've noted, we've only added the Friday show relatively recently, so we're playing around with it. Last time, I just did like, you know, a round of stand-up comedy. This time, you got the uh, crappy duck joke. So uh, not always am I going to land it, but uh, we are going to have a lot of fun uh, sometimes when we can, because it's the only way to suffer through the aforementioned decline of civilization, to at least laugh on the way out. So I always try to take somewhat of a cheery disposition on these things, not because I don't realize how serious things are, but because uh, if we're crying and screaming, we are not going to get through it the way we can if we can find something to laugh at. And we get lots of material for that. So uh, that's my little plug for a bit of joy as you head into the weekend. Hopefully the weather is nice where you are. And if you are inclined to support independent media, you can head over to donate.tnc.news. And we thank you so much for your support. That does it for us. Back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless. And good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.